So this next interview was so great. Incredible. That we, incredible interview that we actually decided to cut up into two parts. This is our first two-parter ever for Big Shot. I mean, and we're talking to a guy in his 90s. Yeah, I think he's 93 years old or something, Yeah, right? something like that. And I mean, he comes in with the energy of a young man. It's I mean, a, yeah. And, he, and frankly, we could have sat with him for 10 hours oh. and it was just banger after banger in terms of lessons and anecdotes and stories. And, and, and the person that we sat down with is none other Izzy Sharp. Izzy Sharp. The founder of the Four Seasons Hotel. Now, what's so amazing about the, the stories he told is that he really he really went to the weeds. He gives the inside scoop on things. He talked about the fact that, I mean, the Four Seasons Hotel stands for luxury and class and style and design. But the first ever Four Seasons Hotel was actually in the Red Light District in Toronto. It was on, there's the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. And then this is, you know, the wrong side of the wrong side. Exactly. exactly. It's totally different. So he starts there and he builds this thing and it turns into the global empire. And not just does he create this wonderful brand and hotel, but he changes the business model of how hotels get built. And I mean, here's somebody who never thought he'd be in the hotel business, right? I mean, he's a builder. He ends up building a motel for someone and he does something very unconventional that you wouldn't think about on the surface. Yeah, that story is incredible. incredible. I, I love that. But and, what a game changer. You know, Izzy is really a polymath. And what I mean by that is he pulls insight information input across every single discipline. And then he creates and shapes these this, this hotel, these buildings, this culture in a way that um, it, it's just incredibly inspiring. No matter what industry you're in, no matter what you're doing with your life, there's so much you can learn from this particular interview. Uh, it's incredible. He, he's someone that, I mean, it took him decades to be an overnight success. Right. I mean, even the story of how long it took him to have his first hotel. And then from getting from his first hotel to his second hotel and the, the lessons he learned along the way, it's incredible. And like a lot of our other guests, one thing that comes out is that his connection, his relationship to his family, in particular to his wife, right? right? How he talks about his wife with incredible respect and care and appreciation and gratitude. It's something that everyone who is married or anyone who's in a relationship, we can all learn from. Because one of the secrets of the success of Izzy Sharp in Four Seasons is Rosie. Oh, big time. It's a 70-year love story, partnership. Uh, They've been, you know, Incredible family and, and, but best of all, I mean, the story of how he goes to meet his father-in-law, who wasn't too sure about him at first, and what he does to that's, win over his father-in-law that's is incredible. It, it, it's amazing. So I think we talk about love, we talk about culture, we talk about building, we talk about success, we talk about um, capitalism, we talk about business models. This is one of those episodes that we could not package everything into one one single episode, so we decided to cut up into two. And honestly, if you're gonna make a two-parter for anyone, Izzy Sharp is the one you do it for. The other thing we have to talk about, and we have to at least acknowledge is, he had some early investors in the Four Seasons business when things were just getting started. Oh, I mean, I can't even calculate the return on investment. It must be one of the greatest investments of all times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. These people gave him $90,000 to invest in this tiny business that turned into a multi-billion dollar empire. The, the way he tells it, how he goes into details about what that investment meant from a percentage perspective, from an equity perspective, and what that is today, there's nothing like it. And and it's also, I mean, he really had strong morals. He took care of them. He could have, there's a million and one ways he could have tried to play games yeah. to get them out of that whole thing. And he, you know, they gave him what, what ended up being a very small amount. 
And he stuck with them for, for many decades because they believed in him in the early days and they became very, very wealthy off this yeah. one small investment. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, you are going to hear about probably the greatest investment of all times that none of you have ever heard about. And we share it today with Izzy Sharp. Started from the Big bottom, shot. now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we're here. So this is, this is amazing. Um, Izzy, thank you for joining us. This project for us, Big Shot, is part documentary and, and part sort of kibitzing in an old school Jewish deli. Mm -hmm. uh, David and I are proud Jewish entrepreneurs. And frankly, we've been inspired by the greats, the great Jewish entrepreneurs that have come before us. And uh, in, our, in, in our view, I, I think you may not want to say this, but in our view, you are one of the greatest Jewish entrepreneurs. And part of what we want to talk about is, is your story. Um, we've read, obviously read your wife's book. We've done our research. But we also want to hear a little bit about what you think is unique about Jewish entrepreneurship, the chutzpah, the audacity, the ambition. And um, if you sort of think about what you built with Four Seasons, let me just throw out a couple of numbers here. So the company you started, Four Seasons, has currently 45,000 employees. You're in 124 locations in 47 countries. 23 years in a row, Fortune Magazine ranked Four Seasons as the world's best companies to work for. And this is kind of neat. Steve Jobs actually credits Four Seasons customer service yeah. as the inspiration yeah. for the Apple Store. That is incredible. But we want to go way, way back. And we want to talk about, even before you built that first 125-room hotel in, in 1961, we want to we talk about you growing up and, and what, what it was like growing up in the Sharp household. Um, you've talked about your, your mother being the matriarch of the family, but what, what was childhood like for you? Well, um, <laughs> you're right when I say my mother was the matriarch. She ruled the house. She was the head of the business that my dad, she would direct what he should do. Uh, he, he was more of a, you know, he was born from the Talmud. He was, you know, slated to be a rabbi, you know. He was born in what is now known as Auschwitz. Yeah. So, so his life was steeped in the religious beliefs, and he lived those, and but never asked my mother to, you know, have a kosher home per se. We did do all the normal things the, you know, immigrants did when they came to America. Um. Uh, so she really was a, a, a force. Um, she was actually brought over by her older brother uh, to marry my father. He, you know, arranged marriages. That was the norm. Sure. But she wouldn't have any part of it. I think she was 16 when she got here. And she was tall and a beautiful woman. But my dad persevered and finally won her over, and to the end, it was a honeymoon. He had her on a pedestal, and their love affair, and at that time, you know, arranged marriages, like Fiddler on the Roof, you know, Do You Love Me, um, was a true love affair. And when she died, and we were all in the hospital when that happened, um, we're wheeling her down the cord, 
No, she had died, and the dead person doesn't necessarily look the way she looked. And he's looking down at her, and he says to the doctor, Doctor, isn't she beautiful? In his eyes, she never changed. She was that young, beautiful 16-year-old that he had to, you know, uh, marry. So our life with my three sisters was... um, um, a tough upbringing. You know, we were struggling as most immigrants were at that time. They didn't have the language, they didn't have the money, they needed to work hard, and every penny was important uh, to them. So as one boy and three sisters, my hand-me-downs were quite funny <laughs> for me to, to go to school with some of the clothes that I had to wear. Um, but our upbringing, um, and I refer to this, that, you know, we're born with our own genes and our own skills that come from generations past. But I think it's the nurturing and the, the, the nurture which we have and the nature of what, you know, we're born with. And we were fortunate that my parents, um, you know, brought us up like they were brought up to be self-sufficient. They never asked us or told us what to do. We went out, they didn't say, where are you going? And when you came back, they didn't say, where were you? It was always the trust of my three sisters and I uh, that we would get by. So we were fortunate to have a supportive upbringing that allowed each of us to, you know, develop our skills, find our way. We were never told what we should become. Um, you know, you grow up as a Jewish child, you're, you're your parents' child. Yeah. You know, you follow what they expect sure. you to do, which we did. I read a great story about your dad. First of all, the, his work ethic on his honeymoon, he stayed home till nine o'clock before he went to work. That's how hard he worked. That was the sleep in for him. That was it. But, but one of the stories that really hit me was uh, he was making, I believe, $15 an hour as a plasterer. And he decides he's going to go off on his own in the construction business. And he gets his first contract and he quotes based off of faulty information, um, which I don't think the project went very well because he honors the contract, even though it means he's going to lose. Um, but he does that out of principle. I'm curious what kind of impact that had on you. Well, you learn about that later on in life, you know, what he did. And they, uh, you know, I think your principles and values that you inherit aren't what parents tell you. It's how they are. It's like osmosis. You learn by example of how they are treating people and how they treat you. So that experience of living up to your word, your bond, is important. You know, don't, you make a commitment, you live up to it. Even if it costs you money. Cost them for years. They were paying off the debt that they had. From that first project? From that first project. Wow. Um, and my mother would not, eat, you know, she, to her, that's what you have to do. You made a mistake. It's the right thing. That's it. We'll do it. So they struggled and finally, you know, paid it off. And then he then slowly became, got into the building business. And as a kid growing up, that was my life. I loved working on construction. Somehow, I, 
it was like a challenge. You know, you played a lot of sports, and that competition was part of my life. So when I was working on construction with these tough, tough immigrants, Polish, Italian, uh, Jewish, um, they, they just were so thankful to have a job. And when you saw how they worked, what a lesson. And wow. you tried to live up. So you could never quite do it as well they, as they did. Um, but I think you earn the respect with your efforts. Yeah. So growing up and working on construction during the summer was my life. And I, and I really enjoy that challenge, whether it's working uh, in the heat and the dust or when I was older, working in the cold. So it was a great training. There's this uh, interesting um, thing that uh, piece of research that Dave and I picked up, which is that to this day, there's not a single Four Seasons where the architectural drawings go forward without your approval. Did you care about architecture and design in those first couple of years when you were on the construction sites? Was architecture and the beauty of the building was that something you thought about, or was it more a job? Well, uh, you know, when I started the company, then architecture was a big part of my, you know, expertise. That's what I studied, and that's what I was, you know, conscious of, the aesthetics. But it's not that I was the designer. I knew that if you hired the, the best in their fields, you're going to get something better than what you could do yourself. So we always hired the people that we thought could do the job best. I was, a, I was a, I critiqued rather than created. And my f approach to it was more from a functional point of view. Because design should function, should direct design. So my look at what I was, what was they were presenting, I would always make a decision based upon the practicality of it. As a builder, I knew what, was difficult to build and what wasn't. So I could control costs by simplifying things from a construction point of view. Uh, but basically, most of the design that people show you, you, you accept. Yeah. So you're really tweaking the edges. Right. And to this day, same principle applies. I'm gonna switch gears uh, to talk about love, which has <laughs> okay. obviously played a huge role in your life, Harley and I are both uh, married with children, and family is extremely important to us. And we hope to be married for 70 years. Yeah, that's I right. believe it's 70 years now <laughs> yeah. for you and Rosalie. Yeah. But we got to go back to 1952. Okay. You're working construction. You're just getting your start in this construction business. Uh, you're dating Rosalie, your now long wife, over 70 years. And her father forbids her from seeing you. He wants a doctor, a lawyer. Not a guy schlepping construction. What's what's the famous and what's the famous joke? The joke, joke, joke? Again, yeah. the <laughs> what's first the joke for for the audience? The first Jewish president, Mrs. Goldstein, sitting next to the vice president at the inauguration, and the vice president turns to Mrs. Goldstein and, and says, "Mrs. Goldstein, you must be so proud. Your 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 son. He's the first Jewish president. My God." And she goes, "I am, I am. But you know, 
his brother's a doctor. <laughs> and so, you know, like many Jewish parents at the time, and probably even still to this day, oh, yeah. uh, her parents wanted to marry a doctor, a lawyer, somebody who could be a professional. And, and I imagine because they had schlepped in, in dry goods and shmatas or whatever, like most Jewish immigrants or immigrants in general at the time. But here she comes to see you. She's upset because her father got upset, threw her out of the house because uh, she saw you even though she wasn't supposed to. And, she, and you say, come, we're going to go talk to your dad. So what isn't covered in the book is, which I'm dying to know, is you walk into that room, her father's sitting there. Like, what did you say? <laughs> well, I don't remember what I said. Um, but uh, the reason, uh, and it wasn't because I was basically in construction. It was more that I was a bit of a, a near-do-good. I was taking out other girls. I was, you know, having a good time. As a kid growing up, when you're, you know, when you're 20, 21, you're, sure. yeah. you're playing the field. So even though I was, you know, dating Rosalie, I was also taking out other girls. And some were a little... A bit of a player. Yeah. And, and some were questionable. So apparently, his, one of his friends saw me with one of these questionable girls. Um, and that's why he forbade her to see me again. And he said, look, this guy is not trustworthy so when she came to my construction job and said, I don't know what to do, my father locked me out because I disobeyed, I was disobedient. So my first reaction was, okay, let's, let's go talk to him. And I don't know why, like I'm only 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't, my whole life has been that example of I never ever have feared the talking or doing things. I've never ever, for whatever reason, your brain works certain ways. I've never had a fear of failure. It doesn't even, when I was doing something, it just doesn't even pass through my mind that it might not work. (laughs) So I think it was that, call it, gene that you have in your mind that, look, there's only one way to do it. We'll go talk to him. Chutzpah. And it's, yeah, yeah, it is. It Speaking is. the same thing. And I, as Rosalie said, you know, I, I stood there listening to him in his quiet, polite way, which has been my way of communicating. You know, find the right thing to say at the right time. Uh, and in a polite pleasant way. So I must have mentioned to him that my, my, my heart is really with your daughter. You know, you might have seen me out doing other things, but we're, we're young and, you know, not ready to get married now. But I must have assured him that my true love was Rosalie. So it had to be something like that. Yeah. And you were a man of character also, that you're not just some, you know. Well, I, I think the fact that I would dare to approach him. Right. right. Takes not, guts. Yeah. So, Takes guts. Yeah. So he must have, from his upbringing, mm-hmm. for what he had and his challenges that he had to do, it must have reminded him of himself. Yeah. That he approached life that way. And built his way up without um, no, no compromise. So I think just the fact that I was prepared to talk, 
sue him. It's not what I said. It was just, just the, action, that, the act of doing that. Immediate action of, okay, let's go talk to your dad. So I think in his mind, yeah. he probably wasn't even listening to what I said. It was just it's a, like the chutzpah, this kid, to come talk to me and show up like this. I would have done the same thing if I was that, that, that I guy, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know, so I, I think about, you talked about you've never had a fear of failure. And I wonder how much of that came from your upbringing, your parents instilling with you this sense of confidence. Did you feel, I mean, you talked about them providing you, creating a, an environment for you to be independent, but did they also provide you with uh, uh, sort of a swagger or a confidence that you can do whatever you, you want to do? It wouldn't be swagger. Uh, it would be um, trust in your beliefs. Because mm -hmm. that was my mother and my father. You know, they both struggled to get to where they were. Um, and you saw that. And I, I think you're born with a certain self-esteem that they encourage. You know, that's what I mentioned with the, the, the nurturing is, you know, they didn't suppress you in your thoughts. Sure. So it built in myself and my sisters, I think, um, confidence and belief in, in yourself. Because um, my mother did. I mean, you know, she didn't have the language, but she was certain of her opinion. I mean, there's no doubt. My, Rosie, <laughs> Rosie talks to she Sounds said, familiar, Dave? <laughs> she, Rosie described it as a woman of no self-doubt. You know, she wasn't born here with all the, you know, policies and etiquette. And she could be quite rude. But she had no malice. It wasn't like she was intending to be rude. That was her. Yeah. And she was going to speak rough. her mind. And if, if you didn't like what she said, that... It's your problem. Yeah. But it wasn't with malice. Yeah. It would always be, you know, I remember my, um, my dad's brother, they were partners together, and he, he sort of took advantage and didn't, he was older and went off and made a lot of money, but he didn't take my father with him, mm -hmm. even though they were plastering partners. He went off. Then my father wasn't, it would be easy for him. Come on, Max, let's do it together. Yeah. So she was always, you know, angry with him about that. And I could often hear them yelling and screaming at each other. You know, this, that. He's screwing you. He's not, you know, something right. like that. Yeah. But at the end of the conversation, he said, okay, okay, Louie, that's enough. That's enough. You'll come for dinner with Rose, the kids. We'll have dinner together tonight. It was that way. And that was it. Yeah, it was like, you said your piece, I told you what I thought. And now we're going to move on. Now, we're still friends. Yeah. So you grow up with that principle of, you know, you stand your ground. Um, and my whole life, I've never been intimidated. I've never shied away. And I often wonder, how did I do that? Like today, if with a little more <laughs> maturity, and I said, I have no idea why I had the courage or, in, or chutzpah to go up to the most important corporation in the world, ITT, and I think I can make a deal with them. That's ridiculous. But in my mind, hey, it's a good idea. I think they might like to hear about it. 
So my belief in my idea never wavered. I just had a conviction, and I couldn't understand why other people didn't see it. So I think as you both have done, you believed in what you were doing and gave you the perseverance to overcome the skeptics and the difficulty. Because you could see the end, it's got to work. I will find a way to make this work. You certainly so, did. <laughs> so there have been so many situations like that yeah. that for some reason I've never felt out of place, you know, talking to royalty or business people who are way beyond my uh, reach. Um, I, for whatever reason, I just felt I'm okay. I'm not trying to pretend and be anything other than what I am. Let's talk a bit about um, that transition from you doing construction to that first, uh, th- that transition to the hotel business. You were hired. Jack to, Gould. Jack Gould hired you to build yeah. a hotel. And I believe the story goes that he wanted you to build a certain number of rooms. Yeah, Dave probably has the details. Rooms. Dave knows all this stuff. 14 rooms. But actually. Well, that, I've, I mean, according to, the, to Rosalie, it was 14 rooms. And you said, look. The location here is not so great. The sign, you need good signage for people to see this thing. Why don't I build you 28? I won't finish the other 14. And it won't cost you very much more, but you'll have double the roof space. You can put the sign up. He said, sure. And Ben, business was good. And then you, not only the 14 you built were great, but then he finished the other, the other 14. 14. So, so yeah. that was sort of your, that was Izzy Sharp's introduction to the hotel yeah. business. You built a hotel for someone else. What was that like? I mean, that yeah, was sort light of bulb went off. That was that was your introduction to to what would become Four Seasons. But talk us about talk to us a little bit about that first project and and building that first hotel for for Jack. Well, it was a job, you know. As we built a factory for people, a house for people, uh, it was just that was the business that we were in at that time. Um, so to me, what he was doing just didn't make sense. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was like in a, re- it was like in a residential area, uh, and you couldn't get into it off the highway. You had, to, you know, you had to get into this residential area and then find this building. And it just looked like a house. So I said, Jack, how are people going to get here? He said, Look, don't tell me. I investigated. This will work. <laughs> I say, I'm not telling you it won't work, but I say, don't you think it'd be better? If it looked like a motel, <laughs> seven rooms, you know, it looks like a big house. So I said, why don't you make it bigger? And we could, the roof, and you'll be able to, on the roof, put a big sign. So people five miles away will know there's something up there that I have to look to get off this highway. So he did, and immediately after he opened, shortly after he called me, he said, you got to come finish these rooms. I'm filled every night. So it occurred to me, if this little motel works here on a limited access highway, wouldn't the idea of a motel downtown um, be better? Well, that was the beginning of a five-year journey, working at night to try to put together the idea of convincing people that this might work. And the answer I kept getting was, look, I know you know how to build it, but you have no, you don't even know what you're talking about. I said, I know I'm not going to run the hotel. I'm just saying 
the idea of this. So that fell on deaf ears. But I believe this would work. I just couldn't understand why other people couldn't see it. So when the spark of an idea doesn't go out, it gives you the conviction. Yeah. So a week turned into a month, turned into a year, turned into two, three, four. Now I'm sure if I would have started, if I thought it's going to take me five years, because I'm still you know, trying to put food on the table and right. struggling to make a living, and this is my nighttime job. Because you're, you're running, so just to be clear, set the stage here, during the day you're running your construction business, and at night you're tinkering on this hotel idea. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't a full-time thing, and was, was the reason it wasn't a full-time thing predominantly because you weren't sure if it was going to work? Or, like, it's, it's kind of a strange hobby to have. Most people on nights and weekends are playing sports, or they're, you know, drinking with friends, or they're going maybe out. Maybe they're a podcast. Uh, maybe they're a podcast. <laughs> uh, but your hobby, Izzy, on nights and weekends— was conceptualizing what would become the Four Seasons Motor Inn. Yeah, I wouldn't prefer, you know, describe it as a hobby okay. because I'm trying to make a deal to make money. Yeah, right. Because in doing this, I was never even thinking that I was going to run a hotel. <laughs> to me, it was a real estate deal. Which and you're you were, in, you're and in you're that real estate guy. guy. And that you're was my business. Construction guy. Right. I could build it, make it, and probably sell it. Sure. Right. You know, that's the business of... You know, real estate is a commodity. Yeah. You know, it's not something you own all the time. It's something you build and most likely you sell. So to me, that was it. It was a business to try to make a little more money for my, what I was doing. Um, and eventually, I was able to cobble together uh, enough money by getting my subtrades. Wow. That, you know, you hire subtrades, you know, Plumbers, electricians. Architects, they, yeah. They, they put in with you. No, they, they, I got them to agree to defer my payments. So let me build this, and I will pay you part of what the contract is. And after the building is up, I'll either sell it or make, make some money, and then I'll pay you more. Wow. And so, you're, so you're saying, in, technically, the first sort of quasi-investors— of like investors, they wouldn't give yeah. you money, but investors in terms of their work in the four seasons were your subtrades. Right. Right. That's incredible. I had two partners. Yep. That put in ninety thousand dollars each. Ninety thousand. These were friends, business associates? My brother in law and his best friend, Murray Koffler, Eddie Creed. They each invested ninety thousand dollars. And then I had over the years badgered a the person who lent me money to build houses ceased foresight of Great West Life Life Insurance. I'd go down to him and bother him, and he would tell me what, because he knew about hotels. Sure. So over a few years, he kept giving me advice. And finally said, look, leave me alone. You're never going to get this done. I said, but if I do get it done, will you, you know, give me a mortgage on this? He said, I'll give you 50% mortgage if you can get the other money. So I came back to him and I said, look, I think I've got the other money. He said, that's not money. I want equity, not, you know, you're borrowing 100%. <laughs> I said, no, we've got 100, you know. 180,000, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he said, that's peanuts. 
I said, but your mortgage is safe. Billing goes up. What do you care? If it doesn't work, so you get the building. So you know, yeah. you only got fifty percent value. He said, "Okay." That was the financing. Wow, that got put together. The remarkable part of it is the two investors each put up ninety thousand dollars. They've never ever put up another cent, and we're partners for life. Wow. So if you think of what they earn. That must be the greatest return of any investment it's, it's in history. Over, yeah. It's never, ever been achieved that they, with $90,000, each became a finally a 25% shareholder. Oh, my God. In four seasons. Each. Well, incredible. And these are people that you— My you, father— my, but They believed in you when no one else did. Well, you know, they said, look, what did we got to lose? Right. So that Although $90,000 in those days, presumably, a was a lot of money. Yeah, but it was, you know, the debt, they call it the, I forget what the cost was for the original, yeah. but it was like 90% debt. Right, okay. So there was like a 10% equity. Got it. But then you build this motor in, like this, this is yeah, not so the four, four seasons, seasons you know today. No, it's a four seasons motor in on, on Jarvis Street. On Jarvis, which is not right. Fifth Avenue. Yeah, this is <laughs> not a, fan, I mean, it's, it's, it's downtown Toronto, yeah. but it's not a fancy area. No, that's putting it's, a yeah, right. It's, it's, you talk the wrong side of the track. Yeah, that, exactly. It is that. Yeah. This was so far off the wrong side of the track <laughs> right. because it was Hooker's Paradise. Yes. Right. Jarvis Street was the red light district of Toronto. The first yeah. four seasons was on, it was basically in the red, red light, light district. district. Why'd you so call why'd it work? Why did you end up, before we go there, why yeah. did you end up naming it Four Seasons? <laughs> That's, uh, the first name was not Four Seasons. The first name, I was, this is in 1959 that we're, you know, building it. And the Thunderbird car was just coming out from Ford. Okay. And that sounded like, gee, that's really a fancy name. We couldn't get it because... Somebody else had already called a motel the Thunderbird. Um, so we're having a conversation with my two partners once, and Eddie Creed was talking about he just came back. He was he was the world traveler because his business was you know uh, retail, um, and he was talking about he stayed in this hotel in Germany called the Fear Yearside. Um, and I said, you know, that translates to the Four Seasons. That was the market's research. Wow. The name just hit me as it rang right. It's nice. And you make, you make the name at the end of the day. Right? A name is only what the product is. Google. Starbucks. Air, Apple. <laughs> yeah. They mean nothing until you connect it to the name. But I must admit that the name Four Seasons would ring better than the Thunderbird. Yeah. In yeah. terms of I, just yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what had the same longevity in terms of, you know, main, this, this incredible, beautiful place with great hospitality and great care. Four Seasons is, yeah, yeah a little bit more ladies accessible and, than... Ladies and gentlemen, we're here today with Izzy Sharp from the Thunderbird <laughs> Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Thunderbird actually said, if it's a motor in, Thunderbird's pretty good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. So he spent five years building the, the Four Seasons uh, motor in. Why did it take five years? Is that just how long a hotel takes to build? Because people didn't, you know, believe me. They said, you don't know anything about it. I, if I know something about the hotel business, it's a risky business to begin with. Uh, there was one man that financed, you know, major financer to most people in real estate. 
Max Tannenbaum, who at that time was one of the wealthiest, you know, developers, and he was in the steel business in Canada. Um, this is Larry's father. Larry's father. Yeah. Larry is one of the youngest of the many children. And he and my dad were friends and partners, you know, built an apartment building together. So I approached Max, like everybody approached Max, Tannenbaum. And he said, look, take my word for it, kid. You don't know anything about this. I do. And you will beat your brains out. Don't touch it. Now, when Max tells you not to do something, usually you do it. You don't do it. Because he, you know, successful businessman. But to me, it just didn't make sense that people couldn't see why. <laughs> if this little motel on the highway works so well, why wouldn't it be more successful in a convenient downtown location? And the reason I'm on Jarvis Street is because there was land was cheap. So I could buy a lot of land inexpensively. And I knew people coming from out of town, they wouldn't know whether it's red light district or not. <laughs> They'll know if the building is worthwhile staying at. So, so it's all these things. You have ideas and you have the, the belief in them. What did you, I mean, you can't knock them for not seeing the vision. I mean, here you are opening a hotel in the red light district, right? Um, what do you think was it, what were they, some of the key things that made that hotel successful? And were those things that became pillars for the Four Seasons later on? Or? Yeah. 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 Uh, it's the research that I was doing to try to understand the business. I traveled and spoke to a lot of people over those many years. As I'm doing it, I'm also thinking of what, what would be the right thing to build. And there was an article I read about this, a man, uh, Elliot Fry, I think his name was, who was a furniture design builder, um, and called. Then he said, come down, I'll talk to you. And Where I was he? He lived, I think it was uh, in Houston. Okay. So I flew down, met with him, and while we were talking, we were in a downtown place in his hotel, um, and it was like in a courtyard. And it was right across the, from a bus station, out. If you went out of that courtyard, you were in the middle of a busy, noisy place that looked like a dump. So it, that rang a bell with me. So when I'm designing the hotel on Jarvis Street, I gave it direction to the architects. I said, I want to build this like the old medieval cities where you have like a walls and people live inside. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a courtyard, but very few rooms will face the street. Mm -hmm. They will all face into the courtyard, and the courtyard will become a garden. The swimming pool will be like an oasis. So you had to get people to look at what you're building as a reason to go there. And that concept of creating aesthetically pleasing, using gardens as the atmosphere, really became the style that got us going from thereafter. <laughs> so the, I think you learn things as you, over those five years, you're gaining some insight into what it is you think will work 
not just a strip motel anymore. So, you know, you develop your ideas based upon a lot of conversations with other people. Uh, so those five years weren't at waste just knocking on doors. Yeah, you were learning, you were building the the yeah, ideas you, and, the, and, the, and the culture that you wanted to use in these you hotels. You an insight into what it is you might want to end up building. So then you decide at some point, okay, this model, this, this, this hotel model, or motel model, I guess at that point, works really well. Did you know you're going to build hundreds, hundreds of them? Like, did you know that you, this is going to be a big thing? Or do you say, you know, let me try a second one? Was it still really about the business? Like, did you think you were onto something at this point? Or was it more just, yeah, let's try a second? How big was the ambition? No, to me, you know, build it. We were running it. It was successful. I enjoyed that aspect of it once we got started. And you were running the hotel so you, you itself? You did manage it. You were managing the real estate. I didn't, but I hired somebody. Okay. Ah, okay. And in hiring, I didn't know anything about hiring people. Sure. Remember? You're ready for trades. I'm a two-man construction. Right. My dad and myself. Yeah. Uh, so I, there was a new hotel opened in Toronto. I think it might have been the, called the Westbury. And it was the new hotels. So I went and spoke to the general manager of that hotel. And I said, look, I'm building something here. I'm not coming to you to see whether you'd like to you know, join me. But do you know anybody I might speak to in the hotel business to hire as a general manager? And he said, yeah, I've got a friend who just came over from England, and he's running this little place, and you might talk to him. So I did. And when I went in and met this man, his name was Ian Monroe, and he was dressed in a very formal, almost like a morning suit, like he was going to a wedding or something. So I talked to him what I'm intending to do. Would you think you'd like to maybe run this hotel for us? And he gave me his list of things he had done. And we had a nice, charming conversation. So I hired him. I don't know how to interview people and how to hire people. You know, I'm still... 20. You're a construction yeah. guy. Yeah, I'm a construction guy, 25 years old. And you seem like a nice guy. Yeah. Well-dressed. Never, never, exactly. Yeah. He made some jokes and talked about what he did before. And I said, okay, but I have one condition. I never want to see you wear that suit in the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of a Not place... Not the vibe that, you were going for. <laughs> I'm thinking of a place that we welcome people feeling casual and... So we joined forces and became very good friends. And he taught me the hotel business. Wow. He was gregarious. He knew food and beverage. He was charming. And he understood. I said, Ian, I want to make sure that whoever comes in that, comes in that door, they're a guest. I don't want to judge people by what they wear and who they are. If they're willing to walk in and want a room, hey, unless you know the guy is a criminal or something. So he understood. I said, they're our guests and treat them as we are the host. So he understood me trying to articulate what Four Seasons has become. Wow. But he understood it because he was that kind of person. Right. Charming, able to. So he hired the people with that basic principle of we treat everybody with respect, welcome them, and that became the beginning. So that, that DNA of Ian is his name, his name? Ian Monroe. Ian Monroe. So is it safe to say that the Ian Monroe 
sort of DNA that Ian Monroe thoughtfulness about hospitality, food and beverage, uh, welcoming people in an, in an incredibly kind way. Is that the blueprint for effectively hospitality? Or the golden rule. Or the, is, is that the blueprint for the golden rule? That's not what caused or became the golden rule, but right. just the principle of treating people as you would if you're having a guest to your home. Right. You know, you welcome them, you want to make sure they're having a good evening. So his expertise was food. Right. He really was a foodie, big, staunch. He looked like him. He liked looked food like as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that was the, the beginning without being able to articulate what we wanted to become. Because remember, I was not thinking of going into the hotel business. Right. right. This is real it estate. Was still a real estate deal. Yeah. I would sell it. Luckily, and fortunately, it became very successful out of the gate. So I could pay back all the people I had promised. And it worked. And some of them didn't want the money back. They wanted to keep the equity. Well, no, they didn't have equity. Oh, they, it was all loaned. When I said, I'll pay you, when the, it was on a handshake. Oh, so you yeah. mean the trades? The, the trades. trades. The yeah. trades, yeah. 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 The trades who allowed me... Just take, I think we had 25% of their contract. Sure. And defer it. And defer it. And so that was just on a handshake. Right. Talk about credibility afterwards. I mean, so then well, you go. at that yeah. time, construction was very much like that. Yeah. You know, you wrote a contract or you didn't even write a contract. The handshake plas- deal. The plasterer right. said, look, I'll do the job. It'll be X. Your word is your bond. Your word is your bond. Um, so it worked. <laughs> then... Um, I got interested in this thing. We didn't have to sell it because it was generating some cash. So I looked at this other opportunity of the what was called the Inn on the Park. Mm-hmm. And it was the same principle of the downtown hotel, but I thought we could do this on a grand scale to make it truly like a resort. Because Four Seasons on Jarvis Street was like an oasis. Mm-hmm. The interior courtyard was like a resort. Swimming pool, gardens. It, was, it wasn't big, but it was a charming atmosphere. Yeah, Especially relative to the location it's yeah. in. You walk through these doors and it was a whole different world. Oh, yeah. Right? But the second one, I mean, your wife tells a funny story where, you know, you wanted to do this on a bigger scale, but you walk out to effectively a field yeah. in the middle of the suburbs. Like, nobody was building quality hotels in the suburbs at this point. No. Well, again, it's, I, was, I was thinking of it as a resort. That this is, you know, on the outskirts of the city, but it's still 10, 15 minutes from downtown mm-hmm. as a drive. But the atmosphere that you could create, because we had 20 acres of land, and on that you could really do right. something. Yeah. And luckily, like the company that I hired to do the first was a company called Peter Dickinson, who was Canada's foremost architect at that time. And we were friends. So I, I don't know how I met him, but we were, we were casual friends. So I couldn't pay him his fees. I said, look, Peter, I just need you to draw the drawings to get a permit. I don't need specifications. I don't need your fancy, you know, follow-up. Just a sketch and plans to get a building permit. So he said, okay, I'll do it for you. And he put a kid in charge called Peter Webb, who was the young architect working in the office. And he designed this magnificent 
Four Seasons Motor Hotel. So now I'm building the other one. I'm talking of now doing something grander. And hiring Dixon said again, his, his office comes and shows me some plans. And I say, this is not a resort. This is like tower. You're building these to be downtown Toronto. This is just, you know, three towers. So I call Peter up and find out he's in the hospital. And I go visit him in the hospital. I say, look, Peter, your office has done something. This is not what I'm talking about. I want something that's going to be spectacular. You know, something that I know is going to, if it works, we can make it much bigger. So we're going to add on. So I, he said, leave it with me. Now, I didn't know then, and we, nobody talked about cancer, but he had cancer. Lying in the, in, in the hospital. So he sketched out, he came back a few days later, he said, come back, he gives me a call, and he shows me this sketch on a big legal-sized pad, yellow pad, beautiful perspective drawing of what the inn and the park looked like when we built it. Exactly. He said, look, this is not my idea. I'm taking a Frank Lloyd Wright concept <laughs> and creating an angular building that if you say you want to add on to it, you can add on and it won't look like an addition. So it was spectacular. I said, Peter, that's it. So his sketch is what became the Inn on the Park. And he died shortly thereafter. So before I even... He never even saw it. Before I even got started, wow. I'm stuck. And his office is disbanding. Right. So I call Peter Webb and I say, Peter, you got to finish this. How can I, you know? It's your vision. Yeah. He said, I go, I got to find a job. I said, the office is closed. And they said, I have no money. I say, look, why don't you, and you had, you know, two guys in the office. Why don't you guys rent an office? I'll pay you on a weekly basis. So you'll be able to, you know, pay the rent and do this job. So you'll do this building for me. So, so they'll essentially have one client, which is you. Yeah, right. that's right. right. That's all they needed because I would pay them. Sure. And, and you're, you're in the meantime, you could look for a job yeah. if you want to. Yeah. So they did. So Peter and Boris Serafa and Rennie Mankus, three kids who worked in Peter Dickinson's office, rented a store, you know, a room above a store. with Their drafting table was a, a door on trestles. They didn't have any money to buy equipment. Mm -hmm. They have become Webb, Zarafis, Minkus, one of the world's foremost architects. No. Because after that, they did another job for me. And then they opened their own firm. So Incredible. The Peter Dickinson office transformed into Webb, Zarafis, Minkus, Housen. Amazing. To become Canada's foremost architect. And partially what I think you saw with them, which I think is, is fairly, if you look at sort of the, the, your story, your ability to spot talent is, is, is quite amazing. It's remarkable. But your ability to actually invest in talent that other people don't see, I think is really what makes the story so special. Yeah. And, you know, David and I think a lot about in our own businesses, how to spot talent that 
frankly, no one else sees, and then how to invest in them and how to give them all the tools they need to become the best at what they do, world-class at what they do. That seems to be a theme across everything you've done, whether it's uh, with your wife, finding someone who you know is going to be the foundation for a relationship and a family, or it's, it's your team at, at Four Seasons. You now have your second hotel, and now you're beginning to think a little bit bigger about many more hotels. You take off to Japan, you look at a portfolio of, of hotels. At this point, now that the second hotel is built, are you ready to make the Four Seasons this great global phenomenon? Is, this, is, that, is that the time where you're like, okay, this is way bigger than anything I could have ever imagined? No, no, because at this point, you know, we had two hotels. And I was still trying to make a living building apartments and houses. So the hotels were generating cash. They were very successful, which needed to be because— yep. Otherwise, there's the nothing. There's, the there's no hotel business. was also done the same way. The first hotel. Trades. All, all borrowed deferred. money. Got it. All borrowed money. Mm -hmm. As I say, no equity was put in. These partners didn't put any more equity, and I didn't have any equity. So everything is borrowed. Because I, I went to the bank and said, uh, you know, and the Four Seasons downtown was a gem. Everybody talked about it. It made you more important than you are, you know, because this was, everybody talked about it. it the most successful little motor in downtown. Um, so when I went to the bank, who had lent us a little money on the first uh, hotel, um, I'd go down to this fancy, huge office building, going into one of the major uh, senior people of the Bank of Nova Scotia. Cliff Ash, and I'm there, you know, and I walk into an office, you know, twice the size of this room, and he says, so what can I do for you? You know, quick, you know. I said, well, I'd you know, like to borrow some money because I've got this idea to build another hotel, and this is what it's about. He says, so how much do you need? <laughs> and I'm choking, because <laughs> I don't know, Eddie, how to borrow money. Yeah. I say, well... $600,000, just out of the blue. He said, okay. So I say, that's it? He said, if that's what you need, okay. Wow. I, I'm in shock. So with that borrowed money and with my trades again, now they believe in me mm -hmm. because, okay, we'll, we'll help you. We build the second hotel. And again, it's not a, you know, if it doesn't work, we're You're cooked. throwing the key. Yeah. It was a phenomenal success because of Peter Dickinson's architecture. The design was so yeah. magnificent. It was dramatic. I mean, you could not want to yeah. go in. You, if you drove by, you say, I, we got to go we look. We got to see what that is. Yeah. But and and, and there's, nothing, there's nothing else like it anywhere, nothing. right? It, it was, when I look at it now, like the photograph sure. of it, Say, how in the world did I do that? You know, <laughs> but you, then you tell an architect you need something that's going to bring people to you, right? It's and like a magnet, you, yeah. Well, you guys have done the same. If you think if you hire the right talent, yeah, and you and you give them the freedom to express what their talent is all about, they they do things out of the box, okay. yeah. So Peter Dickinson's design was a magnet. And Ian Monroe and managing 
as a host did spectacular things in terms of the guest experience. But that was it. Two hotels. But hold on. Good business. I mean, you say at that point, it was just about, you know, you're making money in these hotels. You're still yeah. in the construction business. Yeah. No, and it's a nice, right? But I believe it was the third one. It was London, England, right? The third was London, England. I mean, that's, that's a big jump. That's a chutzpah yeah. moment. I mean, uh, here you are. You got, okay, it's Toronto. Well, you have, you have one in downtown Toronto. You have right. one in well, the suburbs. suburbs. Now you're thinking London, England. That right. seems like a fairly large jump in terms of right. ambition and scale. Yeah. I mean, now you're big. T- I mean, London, England is no. Now you're a big shot. Yeah. yeah. Now you're a big shot. Well, I, you know, after we built the Ian in the park, and now I'm, we're into a little money, you know, so now I'm not struggling as much and we could afford. So I, and we had never taken a vacation, Rosalie and I, you know, so we've married in 55 and the hotel opened in 63. So for that length of time, I, the only vacation we ever took was five years after we were married, we went for a weekend in Niagara Falls. And remember, we're, we're struggling. Rosalie makes her own clothes. She's frugal with the little money that I'm earning, and she never complains. Um, so now we've made a little money. And I said, look, why don't we take a trip? We'll go to Europe. We'll really do it all out, but we'll still do it on a budget. Mm-hmm. So wherever we go, we'll stay one night in a good hotel. It's a really good experience. And the next night, the worst hotel. So we'll average out. So it's good, but nothing in the middle. Was this a business trip or was this a, this a vacation? Vacation. It was. This is just going. But you still want to experiment with different types of hotels there. Well, yeah, but no, I wanted to make sure we could afford a budget. Okay, so it's for budget reasons. Budget reasons, we wanted to you know, go to London and sure. experience visiting London. So while in London, we stayed at the Dorchester Hotel one night. And I'm blown away. You know, if I thought what we did was special, I said, we're in the, you know, minor leagues. This is class. The Dorchester Hotel in London. Yeah, tuxedos, valet parking, it, it was, white linen. You know, I, we were in awe. So, and then we did that going through London, Paris, you know, Italy, and then Israel. Um, so we spent one night in each of these cities. In Paris, we spent one night in the George Sank. Mm-hmm. So it was a great experience of how two kids are traveling through Europe. Remember, we're, we're, we have never traveled. We've right. never been anywhere. And you're in your 20s at this point still? Yeah. Early 30s. Yeah. Early 30s. Now, so this is, now I'm 31 or 2. Okay. And Rosalie never traveled. She never took a vacation as a kid growing up. So we come back and we're, you know, Things are good again. And I happened to mention to a friend who uh, was in the construction business, we were talking, I said, I had this great experience. Just came in the hotel that I just can't get out of my mind is the Dorchester Hotel. So he said, my company owns that hotel. I said, really? He said, yeah, the McAlpines, they own that hotel. I said, well, you tell your people, if they ever want to build a nicer hotel, I can do it for them. (laughs) <laughs> like a joke. Mm-hmm. You know? A little while later, he comes back to me. He said, were you serious about wanting to build a hotel in London? I said, well, sure, why not? So he said, my people would like to talk to you. They have a project they've been trying to get off the ground. That became the beginning 
of again another five-year journey of negotiating to get the London Hotel, make it a four season, or at that time, the Inn on the Park. Wow. Right? And that experience, that, getting that hotel, building that hotel, caused me to think, I'm going to change my career direction. I'm still going to build, but I'm going to focus my attention on building hotels. So London became the prototype and the catalyst that changed me to try to become a hotelier. And it all happened because you made an, an off, uh, random remark to a friend of yours that you can build something better than the Dorchester Hotel. And that particular friend came back to you and said, go do it. Yeah. So that hotel in its first year was voted the best hotel in Europe. So we did build a better hotel than the Dorchester. Wow. And, that, and that was called the Four Seasons? No, at that time it was called the Inn on the Park. Okay. Because the Inn on the Park. You had that from Toronto. The Toronto one, yeah. yeah. Well, because that was the name. Okay. Yeah. You know, that was everybody talked yeah, about, sure. the Inn on the Park. Um, and that experience was probably one of the most enlightening, enjoyable experience in my life. Is, is that the moment where you're like, I made it? I've never ever thought that. That doesn't seem to come in my way of thinking. It's Since just that I enjoyed it and enjoyed the people and the challenge. Because like everything else, it was a huge gamble. That seems to be the common answer amongst a lot of our guests, although we had on as well, said the exact same thing. He's like, you know, we asked him, when did you really think you made it? And he's like, I, I still don't think I've made it. Yeah. No, it doesn't, doesn't come into my, my, my way of thinking. Um, but the experience there was just a, a, a growing up sure. experience. Yeah. Uh, of, you know, dealing with people who were, you know, next to royalty. <laughs> so these were Europe. These are these people, socialites his, and, and history in the making. Sure. You know, a family, McAlpine family. At, sure. You know, one of the largest industrialists in Europe. So my meeting these people and being welcomed and treated, you know, politely was really a great, great learning experience. And let's face it, I mean, you're a Jew yeah. going to see the McAlpines, who I'm assuming are old money. Yeah. And this is, this is not in, in, I mean, we're talking the 60s, right? No, that's seventies or yeah. This is and you know, I, I you know, Izzy is a Jewish you know right. everybody knows who you are. Yeah, it's right. like Finkelstein you know, or Siegel. It's not what everyone you look like. Yeah, they, you know, you're introduced. You know, right. So and I I never I've never gone by my, my name Isidore, uh, because that's the way you grow up. People call you Izzy or Izzy. Um, my aunt used to call me Isidore because her son was also called Izzy. So Okay, so that was her way of differentiating. Uh, so that really was the catalyst. Yeah. And from that point forward, I focused on trying to build more hotels. So if you loved part one of the Izzy Sharp episode, stay tuned for part two. It is a banger. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. I didn't keep you real from the jump. Living at my mama's house, we'd argue every...